You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode number 90, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Now, before we get to the episode, uh, just a little show business. I want to say thank you once more to all the people who support the show. And by support the show, I mean monetarily. Uh, the systems and services and tools that it takes to operate a podcast over a long haul are fairly expensive, and uh, what your contributions mean is that I don't have to cover all the expenses out of my pocket. Uh, and since I'm retired and I'm on a, on a fixed income, I really appreciate that. Uh, just an example, I recently had to replace a faulty microphone used for remote recording, so that's just uh, one of the expenses involved, and travel is sometimes another one. Uh, what supporting the show also means is that there are no commercials, so uh, there are no breaks in the episode where I come in and tell you all about boutique dog food or male enhancement products and, uh, heaven forbid, cryptocurrency. So supporting the podcast is easy to do. And there are several ways to do so. You can use Patreon or you can make a one-time donation, but I will tell you more about how to do that at the end of the show. So uh, what else is going on? Uh, I uh, recently attended the 50th anniversary meeting of the Kansas Herpetological Society in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, Justin Michaels and I drove out there on a Friday and uh, returned home the following Sunday. Uh, so the KHS, uh, they filled the weekend with a full itinerary of activities, in including a lot of um, uh, presentations and guest speakers, including Dr. Harry Green, who gave a stellar keynote talk about Pleistocene rewilding and bolson tortoises. Uh, I took some notes, and I'm still thinking a lot about his presentation. I also ran into some old friends there, uh, including some folks who have made appearances on this show. Uh, Mike Rochford from the very first episode, and also Darren Riedel and Rachel Pickstein, uh, both recent guests on SMP. Uh, so Darren and Rachel also gave presentations at the meeting, and uh, Mike brought his wife Sarah and their two boys, so it was great to meet them all. I also want to give a shout out to the KHS folks who put on the event. Uh, they did a super job, and I'm very appreciative of how smoothly it all went. Uh, I love attending meetings like this because uh, they are I mean, for me at least, a they're a big battery charger. They really get my motor running for things like uh, you know herp ecology. And these meetings are an opportunity to see you know old friends and make some new ones. And uh, I also got to facilitate a potential future collaboration between two field projects studying ornate box turtles, and that made me very happy. I also made some contacts for future episodes of the show, so yay, that's also good. So I went home tired but victorious. Okay, let's get to the episode. I do my best normally to not do a lot of front-loading as a rule, uh, but I'm going to do some here and some backfilling at the end as well. Uh, and uh, because I need to thank some folks that weren't mentioned in the interview and, and pull out a few points that didn't quite get made clearly. Uh, so I've talked about Herp Mapper here and there on various episodes, uh, but since September of 2023 was the 10th anniversary of the project, I wanted to devote an episode to it and uh, talk with Don Becker, 
and Chris Smith. So the three of us are the primary architects of the Herp Mapper project, and I am immensely proud of the work we've done and of the success of the project. Uh, Dr. Josh Otten was kind enough to serve as our interviewer. You may recall that I talked with Josh and Don recently, along with Jim Shiraz for the Mudbox Hog Extravaganza uh, back in episode 86. So in September, I traveled once again to Muscatine, Iowa, and uh, Chris came down from Minnesota, and I recorded once again in Don's living room. Not the best place to record, as you'll see from this episode, and there were also some issues with Chris's microphone, but uh, fortunately, I was able to recover his audio from another track, and then I tossed that mic into the trash and bought a new one. If you're not familiar with Herp Mapper, here's a 40-second synopsis. Herp Mapper is a community science-driven project that records Herp presence data and then shares that data with researchers, state agencies, and other folks doing Herp science and conservation work. It centers around an app on your phone that lets you record a voucher, a photo voucher, and a GPS location for individual herps in the field. And so anyone can submit herp records. And indeed, over 430,000 records have been submitted over the past 10 years. So let's get to that interview. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Wow. Yeah, poltergeists. Give her. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Whoops. Please tell me he's upstairs. Welcome to my favorite ghost story. Okay, we'll have to start that one all over again. Yes, sure broke. <laughs> <laughs> he was leaning on the arm screws. Okay. We heard it here first, folks. What was the cat on my porch? I think his kids right by in the oh. Okay. Oh, brother. Saturday afternoon. Nah. What the hell? My street's like literally. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome back to the show. And once again, I am talking to you from Muscatine, Iowa. I'm in Don Becker's living room for the second time in a, just a few months. And uh, we are going to talk uh, about another different subject while I'm up here. And uh, let me just kind of go around the room and introduce. Our guests. Uh, first guest is me. Uh, second guest is Don Becker, whom you heard uh, just a few months ago. Uh, we talked about uh, box turtles and mud turtles and hognose snakes. And then we also have Chris Smith, who came down from Minnesota today to be with us. And uh, our guest host for this broadcast is Josh Otten, Dr. Josh Otten, yeah. who has agreed to sit in and ask us. Uh, some pointed questions and uh, get to the bottom, get to the truth, uh, get to the sort of details behind the Herp Mapper project. Uh, now, why are we talking about Herp Mapper? Um, well, it's a project that Don, Chris, and I have been involved with now for 10 years. Uh, this month, the project is 10 years old. And so I thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about how we started, how far we've come, and where, where we think we might be going in the future. And Josh is here to uh to direct all that so welcome to the back to the show josh thank you thank you are you ready to take over the controls i think so i think uh, i'm ready okay are you guys ready find out all right all righty thank you for the invite i i appreciate the <laughs> offer to uh to host this and i figured i should start from the beginning and figure out how you guys got into herps do you remember the the first herp that you might have captured 
or how herps may have impacted your life in a major way? Who wants to go first? Well, your first herp capture goes back to furthest, so let's start with you. <laughs> yes, I remember it went, it was yesterday. Uh, uh, the earth had just recently cooled <laughs> and we were riding dinosaurs. Did you actually watch it crawl out of the water and come to land first? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I was, I was 11 or 12. I'm still kind of fuzzy on that. Uh, caught a brown snake in my backyard, uh, St. Louis, suburban St. Louis backyard. And, uh, sort of from there, I was like, why are there snakes in my yard? And just kind of got really curious about it. Um, and, uh, I've sort of been interested ever since. So that was uh, 50 plus years ago. So, um, still at it. Yeah. Mine was also snakes in a yard that I can remember. I, I know I have some earlier turtle captures, like my parents would be driving us down the road on a family trip and my mom would hit the shoulder of the road so we could go catch the turtle that just went off the side of the road. Um, but like my earliest, like real good memory of one was just like 30 or 40 garter snakes under some wood in my yard that I caught and of course brought them absolutely every one of them inside. So as were the, as were the ways back then. <laughs> so yeah, and I've just been hooked ever since. Yeah, interesting theme here. So my earliest recollection is also a snake in the yard. I grew up in Southeast Texas, uh, Spring, Texas, to be exact. And I recall probably four or five years old, um, playing in the dirt as kids do and running across a small little brown looking snake. It turned out uh, later on in life, uh, I figured out it was a rough earth snake and um you know, being a, a Texan at the time, you know, a lot of my neighbors were not big snake <laughs> fans. And I, you know, being attracted to these kind of mysterious um, critters, uh, really just fell in love and wanted to catch more, learn more and, and you know, kind of be an advocate for the creepy crawly things. So thinking about Herb Mapper, you know, that's why we're here talking about the 10 year anniversary and thinking about what that does. You know, the three of you have pretty diverse backgrounds, interesting backgrounds, and wondered what your sort of career path trajectory led you kind of to where you are working for working with Herp Mapper? Well, I think I have to take this one first. So I, I, I'm a programmer is what I do for a living. Um, <clears throat> anybody I think half familiar with the project has probably known that part by now. We, we highlighted on the website. Um, in my early 20s, I kind of started working a, a weird shifted office max where I was like working it from five in the morning till one in the afternoon. I had a lot of time getting off this before I'd actually gone out on my own to be a programmer. I was always doing like side jobs and side projects and stuff. And obviously I had to pay my bill somehow, but I do these afternoon hikes and it kind of reinvigorated me and kind of rekindled my interest in snakes. And when I started joining the community back online and stuff like that, it's everyone else is sharing their finds on, on various websites. And it was a, what are we doing with all this? You know? And there was a local project in Iowa. I don't. I, I, they might do in other states too, but they called it the Iowa Nature Mappers Project or program. Uh, and they did these trainings. You could come in and you could you could uh, report your fines. And it was really difficult to report your fines at the time. Um, and the guy who headed it, I, I kept trying to volunteer my time. They wouldn't let me. I wanted to do work for them for free. And there's a lot of things that I actually did. I took it upon myself to try to improve their website and would send them all the changes and all the code. And they told me they couldn't accept my code because I wasn't a university student. So 
I basically then, I mean, to some extent, kicked down the doors when any herp came up that I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Because um, someone else, you know, uh, Jeff Lemon come up with the idea too. And he's like, I want to do this. I can do this. I'm a programmer. I don't know. I just felt that I had to do this. I was the programmer who was into herps. And I didn't like that nobody had a good database or they were difficult to use. And I set out to make it my goal to make it easier. Uh, that's how I got it. I mean, unless you want a whole origin story of programming, which would be really boring. <laughs> and I can, go, I can go next to kind of leaving, leaving or starting where I left off before. You know, I spent my, you know, uh, you know, elementary school years, middle school years chasing, you know, snakes and, and learning to love turtles and frogs and salamanders as I was discovering more of the, the critters that inhabited my, my local area in Texas. Um, fast forward through the teenage years where there were some distractions. Um, as I was wrapping up high school, I was like, you know, what kind of distractions? <laughs> what, what, what do you expect from a teenage boy? Uh, there Oddly, when I, dis- when I lived in Florida, I was not very into herps at the time either when I should have been. I would say there was, yeah, four or five year distraction in there. Um, but then, you know, you, you tail end of high school rolls around. You got to start thinking about what your next steps are. I knew I liked to be outside. I knew I liked working with animals. You know, oh, everybody's, you know, dream at that point is like, well, you go to be a zookeeper. And so I thought maybe that's what I was going to do. So I looked into, you know, what it would take to become a zookeeper. Turns out you need education, college education. So I enrolled in in college to get some generals out of the way. And I did some uh, seasonal summer work with some traveling reptile type educational programs and kind of quickly realized that. I didn't want to just work with them in captivity and cages and cleaning up after captive animals. And so I did a little bit more looking at the universities and programs and, and was fortunate enough to stumble into a fish and wildlife program. Hmm. And that's where I got my undergraduate degree in is fisheries and wildlife and uh, continued on to a master's program in conservation biology and then was uh, fortunate enough to get some seasonal work working for the, the a state natural resource agency. And that fortunately transitioned into a permanent position. And in that position, I really could see the value of data. You know, Mm -hmm. so for a lot of our amphibians and reptiles, we really don't know nearly as much as we would like to know to make good decisions related to habitat management, regulations, and things of that nature. And so I met these two guys and, uh, you know, saw the value in getting folks who were like me, like to go out and look for these critters uh, for fun and see the value and actually kind of documenting our observations, recording that data so that it could be used by the broader kind of conservation and research group. And and HerpMapper uh, has, you know, in my mind, succeeded in doing that. And we're continuing to do that and look forward to talking about what the future might look like for HerpMapper. Well, I don't know how I can follow that up. That was that was beautiful, man. I was thinking the same thing. Like, I need to go back and be more verbose about my history. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, you can just edit it out. <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm I'm gonna keep mine a little more simple since I've spent so many years in the field. Um, uh, you know, sort of it, for my you know self aggrandizement. It's it was pleasurable, but then along the way, I, I had opportunities to help with you know, field surveys and things like that, uh, which kind of primed the pump for what we, what we do with HerpMapper. We kind of opened my eyes up to the idea that it's not just uh, uh, a fun and games, but uh, you 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 kind of have to give back. Um, herps have been very, very good to me, you know, uh, like like Pele says. Uh, 
they've been very good to me. So I wanted to, you know, find ways in which I could uh, make a uh, contribution in kind. And of course, you know, helping out with uh, biological surveys is, is a great way. Uh, bio blitzes and things like that. So that that's kind of set me on a, a path where it's like, well, uh, yeah, the, the whole herp mapper thing, the idea of putting together something that benefits herps uh, uh, in in ways that are outside of my professional career. You know, I'm not a conservation biologist like like you are, Chris. So, but I can still help uh, do some things to to help herps uh, uh, help them be managed better, maybe uh, you know, uh, protected better. So that's that's kind of yeah. my angle on it. Yeah, that, that, that sounds great. Like three, you fit fit well together. And you know, Don had mentioned the NA herp uh, briefly there. So then I'm wondering how the three of you ultimately came together to start her mapper i dragged them kicking and screaming uh i I, th- I think it wasn't really kicking and screaming as much for mike chris was an easy sell so um we we had all taken part in, in the naherp.com website i was as the the developer for that one as well um and that was kind of around the nafa group the north american field herpers association and there was individual chapters around the country. And then there was, we called the international coordinator because there was attempts for a Canadian chapter. I don't think it ever actually took off. And there was attempts for a Mexican chapter, which I also don't know how well it went, but the goal was it was the North American field herpers association. And so there would be Canadian and Mexican chapters too. And then you had basically the coordinator that kind of helped oversee things amongst all the, the different chapters. And so Mike and Chris both had experience of being that international coordinator at one point or another um, so from the get go, I was, I was the database coordinator. I'm the only person to have ever held that position, I think for NAFA and the database. Um, oh no, they might officially have a new one now since I don't manage it, but, and basically there, there was, there was issues there, you know, when I was working with the data partners and giving data out and we had these issues and I, we were down in snake road and I told these guys like, I got this idea for this other thing I want to do. Mike was totally against this idea at first. Like, no, 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 we need to fix this. We need to make these improvements. And Chris is just like, I don't care. Let's do it. And it turns out then Mike, who finally looks over me from his chair and goes, wait a minute, Don, if you do this new thing, do I got to re-enter all my data into a new database? And I go, oh, no, Mike, I'll make an import tool. He goes, screw it. Let's do it. That was it. That's all it took to sell Mike. As long as he didn't have to do re-import all his <laughs> records. So uh, that's how I dragged him in, you know, metaphorically kicking and screaming. That's all I had to do to convince him was... You don't got to do any other work, Mike. I'll import your records. I would describe it perhaps a little bit differently, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean NA Herp, so the North American you know Herp Project and and NAFA kind of as a, a sister organization is how I got to know these two uh, earlier in you know those days. I forget exactly what year that whole project really got going, but um, you know at the time we realized again that we can you know capture people's observational data and really give back to the herps that we're all passionate about but herpers and this will be no surprise to most of the folks listening on this this podcast herpers are pretty secretive and for good reason poaching is a big issue and so at the time that organization was set up in a way uh, and managed in such a way um, that was at you know again at the time i think it was set up the way it had to be set up to be successful at that time and over the years, hurdles, obstacles, um, call them what you will, were identified. And I think both Mike and myself 
and, and working with Don and others within the organization, tried to address some of those obstacles. And towards the, the end of my tenure, um, about the time we had that conversation at Snake Road, I think we saw value in, um, you know, kind of starting from scratch and setting it up for success from the ground level. Um, and that's really, in my mind, how HurtMapper was uh, originally. Well, I think it's it's good to, to point out some of the differences between the two projects um, in terms of scope. You know, we have a, a project that was North American in scope, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, conservation organizations like, uh, California fish and game, for example, could use the data or could apply to use the data, uh, from NA Herp and, and then, uh, it would come up to a vote and you had to, you, you had to say, yes, you may use my data or no, uh, you can't use my data. Um, and, uh, and it turns out that w- that was very problematic mm. over the course of time. That's, that's sort of, um created some issues and uh, hurdles, yeah, that you were talking about. So that was that was one reason uh, that we felt, that, because it, what happened is you would, you would have uh, hundreds of people making unilateral decisions about, about the release of data. And, uh, of course, uh, the goal of helping the animals sort of got lost in all this uh, morass of data ownership. So that was one of the sticking points of, of NAHERP. And also the scale. It, it was only for a certain portion of the globe and and the other idea that you know that don don wanted to do a global hmm. project which it also made much more sense to me uh let, let's go ahead let's not just do a partial thing for these countries let's get everybody across the planet involved and if you've looked at our herp mapper heat map on our herpmapper.org lately uh, uh i think we've done a pretty good job of that i think uh we're at 176 countries now with wow. with records out of 200 and 250 countries or whatever. So I think you know that's proven itself to be uh, that was a good decision to make. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how we decided. Uh, well, we have to fix the problems in the that came up in the original project, and then expand the scope. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the ways we fix these these problems about you know, well, should I let this person have my data? Should I let this? Instead of letting each individual user basically vet the applicant, the person who's or the organization that wants to use the data, um, with her with HerpMapper, uh, when you sign up, you agree to let uh, let anyone use your data. That's uh, I don't want to say anyone, any of our vetted partners and institutions use your data. So you you only make that decision once when you sign up for the project. So. That, that makes it easier for everyone involved. It's like, okay, I'm going to use this project. Uh, I'm going to trust that HerpMapper is going to only give the data that I have collected uh, to uh, bona fide organizations, research institutions, universities, conservation organizations, state agencies, things like that. So um, I think that that was a better way to go. Um, yeah. And it put more of the burden on HerpMapper, as, as you talked to Chris later, about this, put more of the burden on HerpMapper to make sure that those, the people requesting data were uh, the real deal, legitimate. Right. Yeah. I, I want to, I got a follow up for you two on this because I kind of already touched on the fact that like I tried to do the IO Nature Mappers program, like I, I wanted to do this. And like I think we just talked a little bit about how you guys transitioned from NA Herp to HerpMapper, but like what made you guys want to help with NA Herp, you know, a little more too? Mm. Like Chris, you already said you want to take some data, but like is there, what did you feel you could do going into that one? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, from my perspective, again, you know, working at a, a state agency, seeing the value of, of having data when for species where we often lack data, you know, when I first learned of, of NA Herp and I wasn't involved in the origination of that project, I was like, this is exactly what we need. Like, I'm all in, like, how can I help? And that's really kind of how I eventually got got involved. I served um, for a few years as the, I forget if we call it the Midwest chapter, I think president and a couple, maybe a couple different roles in that capacity. And and then got more involved in kind of the umbrella organization, the parent organization's, um, you know, organizational structure. And, and like I said, I, I all along was like, you know, how do we tap into the fact that there are a lot of people out there interested in observing and photographing and oftentimes taking their own data on notebooks, mm. but how can we get that data to some place that can have that larger impact? It, it's interesting too. And I, Mike, I don't want you to go into that too, in a minute here for your, your experience that ain't hurt, but, uh, it's interesting how many people had that thought independently. Cause I, I mentioned Jeff Lem, Jeff Lem is who, you know, it had the idea for hurt mapper. And that was what he had, he had told people too, when he wanted to do it was he was out herping with these people and they had these little flip notebooks and they're writing down coordinates and what they're seeing and stuff like that. And he goes, what are you guys doing with it? And they go, oh, we got shoe boxes and shoe boxes full of these notepads back at home. Right. And it's like, well, what, what are we doing with it? Yeah. And I had <laughs> done the same thing. I had kept notes. And because I had an agency connection and a, um, some involvement with the, the local museum, I was trying to get that data into those databases. But again, that really benefits a much smaller group of, of potential data users because, you know, agencies tend to be pretty tight with data access. Um, museums vary, but sometimes have just difficult processes to actually get the, get the access when you request it. And so I saw this as a way to really kind of maximize the benefit so that data could be used by kind of the, the largest bona fide group of, of organizations out there that, that, uh, you know, my, um, oldest field note, I still have it. I still have that notebook. <laughs> yeah. Can you inform, uh, 1973. I don't think the rocks had hardened then by actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was born <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, but I'm still proud of that. So I was, I was making field trip notes, uh, since that time off and on, you know, there was, uh, as you say, there was, a uh, the era of distraction in high school and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, along the way, I, I, they're on my porch. I think they're playing with One my moment, railing. <laughs> uh Oh, yeah, you're gonna break my railing. Don't do that. We're also recording some audio in here. Can you guys not play on the porch right now? Hi. What? We're just we're doing some recording in here. Can you guys play a little further away from the door, please? I don't know if they're used to the house being empty or if they're just yeah. okay, Don. You're a lot nicer than me. I would have opened that up, <laughs> that door up, and yelled at them, "Get off my lawn." I'm uh, I'm new to the neighborhood still. I don't want to make enemies yet. Oh. Eventually, I got to deal with all the outdoor cats, and I'm going to not have friends then. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Back back to you, Josh. Okay. So you, you guys, you really touched on my next question, which I think that you know, Hurt Mapper does a great thing with, and that is, you know, the importance of citizen science, like how how that might fit to sort of these bigger conservations and and really why why we do what we do 
So I, I had a recent exchange with someone like three or four days ago that I, I think kind of adds to this. And it's it's something that I think has been in my head, but I didn't really think about how it applies. So we always talk about people, you know, recording the rare species. You know, I, I tell people for every, like every birder, there's 10,000 birders for every one herper out there. Um, and some of these species are just happenstance if someone comes across them. So yeah, someone finds a, you know, like our speckled king snakes in Iowa are just so few and far between, you know, and it's in and any person we can have out there looking for them is great. But someone had asked me, they found a fox snake and I'd asked them to record it. And someone had made the comment on a Facebook group about how, yeah, if it's a rare species, Don wants you to record it. And I was like, well, I want you to do common species too. And someone, someone asked me why. And like, we always have this mantra about keeping common species common. Like we need to be able to record them all the time. So we know they're declining. But what I don't think people understand sometimes too, is that the fox snake she posted is, is relatively abundant in Iowa. You know, we, we see them all over the place. Now, they're not abundant in Missouri. You know, they're, they're only known from a handful of spots. They're on decline there. They're, they're trying to find them again. And so you have this, though, where if enough people, if we, if we take in 10,000 records of fox snakes in Iowa where they're abundant, we can use that data to do like, like gap analysis and habitat modeling and stuff like that. And then people in Missouri can take that data that we have from Iowa and can use it to go out and find stuff down there. So that was just, and, and I think I've, like, in my mind, I've known that, that we contribute to a larger project like that. But until I was talking to this, this woman a few days ago, like, it never, like, that one never came into the forefront of my thought that, yeah, we can, we can take all of our common species in Iowa and use that data to model stuff in, where it's endangered. And that can benefit those people too. So these people in Iowa who feel like, oh, I'm just recording a common species. And it's like, yeah, but you're making someone else's job like way easier. They're, they're loving this data coming yeah. in, you know? Yeah. And I would just add to that, just piggybacking off that example, you know, the, the, the phenological aspect of large data sets is really valuable. And, and we, we tend to take common species for granted. Like how do you survey for, um, they have no fist or towels, common garter snakes. Like, what's the survey protocol? What should it look like? Well, I don't, you know, we don't ever think about that because you just always find them. But yeah. in a place, going back to your fox snake example, how do you survey for fox snakes? Like, what's the right protocol? Well, with a large enough data set, both using kind of habitat and the phenology of it in a place where they're not common, that data can be really valuable to develop that protocol. Like, you know, how, like what time of year, what time of day do you go out and do your surveys to kind of maximize that probability of detection? Um, and so, yeah, this, this large data set, you know, this idea of big, large quantities of data can be used in all sorts of interesting ways, you know, from actually on the ground conservation management, you know, survey protocol development and kind of everything in between. Well, it also makes me think, and, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here uh, on your questions, Josh, yeah. but uh, for those people that haven't used HerpMapper, we have we have basically two things we we that constitute a record, creating a record in the in the database, and that is a, f a photo of the animal, a photo voucher, we call them, of the animal, so we can make sure, we can identify it and uh, make sure we know what it is, or an audio recording in case of a frog. Um, the other portion, the, the valuable portion is the location, uh, which is provided by your phone. Everybody's phone talks to satellites. I don't know if everybody realizes that or not, but I think that's pretty cool that my, my phone right now is talking to a satellite. Um, so we use the GPS location on your phone and a picture and create a record. Uh, and that enough alone times 400 plus thousand is enough to provide adequate data to do some of the things we're talking about. You're talking about spatial modeling, but we're also 
the thing that always gets me is uh, if you work for conservation for your state and you have to make you manage some properties and you have to make some decisions about how to manage those properties having a, a an idea of what herps are on those properties and where on the properties those herps occur make it a lot easier for you to make decisions about how to manage that property what like should we burn this area this year um should you know should we uh, deal with some water management issues all those things can be eat more easily uh decisions can be more easily made because you've got actual data on common herbs yeah so that, i mean that leads perfectly to this question is it's 10 years of herb map what is herb mapper exactly who can use it and how do you start to use it you said you know you take the gps with your phone and a photo but how exactly does one get it yeah, so I often think of HerpMapper as this global data repository for amphibian and reptile occurrence data. And we, as HerpMapper, we're not doing a lot of the data analysis ourselves, but instead we are trying to then get those data into the hands of researchers, conservation groups, things of that nature that are doing that conservation work. So you can kind of almost think of us as kind of like a data broader uh, in, in some ways. Um, and then, yeah, you know, as, as far as like how you use it, you know, the app is in my mind, the easiest way, mm-hmm. uh, I do almost all my data collection using our mobile application. Now, you know, you take the photo, you can take an audio recording in the app itself. As Mike mentioned, it will automatically grab your location using, you know, the internal GPS and cellular network. So you don't even need to be online. You don't need to have cellular signal. That's something that people ask about. You can be totally, you know, out in the boonies, no cellular network, and your phone can still grab a location off of this. Your phone talks to space without your permission. Technically, it listens to space. My phone talks to space. I've got the, I got that extra option on my iPhone. <laughs> iPhone 14 Max. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's how I do it. But then certainly folks that maybe don't want to carry a phone or device with them all the time. Uh, you can you can enter observations after the fact, so after the observation itself occurred using our website. There's a couple of different ways you can do that, kind of depending on user preference. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big big app user, so that's what I do. I'd say 99.9% of all my data collection is in the app. The one you know the one kind of caveat is the app really is meant for in the moment data collection. So if you want to take a bunch of photos and things and not you know, not collect data in the moment, then the website is typically the tool you want to use and go into your data after the fact. But I'm a in the moment, let's get it, you know, let's collect this data with a little bit of practice. I mean, I can add records in like, you know, 20 seconds or give or take. So it's really quick, just do it right in the moment uh, and then move on and keep enjoying your day or going about whatever else you're up to. Um, I guess, I don't know if this goes along with the what is Hurt Maverick kind of, kind of goes along with what Chris is saying though too, where, um, and I guess one of the issues we changed, one of the things we addressed from NA Herp to Herp Mapper, uh, is that we do require specific locations for the records, you know, GPS coordinate, whether that comes off your phone. Um, anyone who's tried to use the website, I'll apologize. There are four methods for creating records. Uh, one is your mobile app and there are three on the website. It's, it's just based off your preferences. I try to clean it up, but some people use each of them. So I don't, but 
Uh, the website will extract GPS coordinates if you have a phone, you know, it geotags the photo, or if you have a point and shoot camera or an SLR, any any digital camera that does geotagging, uh, the website will extract your GPS, your time, your date, stuff like that as well. Um, and so a lot of those those forms are based off it. But it's one thing to have 10,000 records for a species and say, oh, they're in this county. And then after a while, those, I don't know how much you're adding to it. And even so I've had people tell me like, they'll, they'll contact me personally. You know, I, I do some, some research here in Iowa with Josh. Um, and people will contact me now. Oh, we found a snake at this park. And I was like, well, where? Oh, just in the park. Isn't that good enough? It's like, well, for, for an initial sighting, it's great. But after a while, I'd like to know where, and, and the example we always tell people, um, like Jim and I talk, we like to go out and find timber rattlesnakes. And if someone, if someone calls me and tells me they found a timber rattlesnake in August, and they'll go, oh, we found it at the park. And I'll go, cool, neat. You know, cool. Now we know they're there. If they tell me they found one at the end of April, early May, or into October, I want to know the rock they were standing on when they found that timber, because that means it's a den. So having having that GPS data helps to locate stuff like that. And as, as Mike was saying before, land management and stuff too, where um, you might you might have where things congregate. I mean, you know, uh, not from citizen science data, but, you know, Josh and I at our research site have like located some turtle hibernaculas for box turtles. And it's like, that's the kind of thing you can actually ascertain with actual GPS coordinates coming in on the data and not just saying, oh, it was at this park or it was at this in this county or some general area. So that's that's why we we take those coordinates, too. And we think that's important. Man, I, I just want to take you back real quick because Don mentioned the GPS coordinates and being really specific is is, is ideal and, and really the most valuable data. But one thing that sets HurtMapper apart from a lot of other projects is that we take in that really detailed locational information, but publicly, you know, so if anybody today or whenever you're listening to this goes online and looks at HurtMapper website, you only get to see as a, you know, a member of the public, uh, the information down to a relatively broad geographic area. So like in the United States, you get to see it at the county level. Mm -hmm. Internationally, we use roughly similar kind of geopolitical boundary sizes. And, and I want to make that point that, Publicly, you don't get to see that that level of precision, but our data partners, those folks that come through and get vetted for access, they do get access to that really detailed location. And again, that kind of maximizes either the research or conservation value of that data to those groups. But because poaching uh, is such an issue with amphibians or reptiles, the project as a whole doesn't publicly display that information. Yeah, that's, that's good to know, because I was going to say that as, as somebody that uses it and you're talking about exact GPS locations and I'm marking sensitive species in there, I, I wanted to make sure that you highlighted what's actually done with that data and those people that can do something with that specific data, like how, what kind of vetting process uh, occurs with that. Well, uh, I want to circle, or before we get to that, hold that for a second, I want to circle back to, you know, we're talking about what is HerpMapper. We kind of got off track here a little bit. We have HerpMapper, the front end, which is an app on your phone. Um, you take a walk in the woods, you see, you, you find 10 box turtles, you make 10 records for 10 box turtles for that day. You're done, you go home, you have 10 pending records on your phone. They're not in the HerpMapper database yet. You've got to uh, upload, use a, a sync option on your phone to upload those records to the database. Now they're in the database. Now those records are available uh, to be used by our research partners. So there's that, that's the, the front end. You haven't done anything uh, yet if it's just sitting on your phone. You've got to 
send them up to the database. And that's the, the next important step with that. Uh, and as a user of HeartMapper, you also get to keep access to your data. You're not just pushing that stuff out there and then it disappears and you don't know what the heck happened. You can log into your account on HerpMapper and see all the records that you put in, uh, all the locations. You still maintain complete access to your records and, and, the, and the geolocation stuff. So uh, personally, I find that useful. I can go back and find out exactly where I've seen every herp that I put in the database. And that is also a very useful tool, especially for somebody like me whose memory is uh, sometimes a little dim about when was that, what year was that, what county were we in? All that stuff is in there forever. And uh, I find that extremely useful. So it's a tool, uh, it, you know, it's for giving back and helping the herps, but it's also a useful tool for the people who actually use the application as well. So I want to bring that back around before yeah, yeah. we yeah, thank before we talk about uh, yeah. vetting partners and things like that. So I, great point, Mike. And I would just add that I frequently utilize that the ability to download my own records as a Google Earth file and, and visualize like where I've been and traveled to. And yeah, you know, oh, I found this really rare. You name it on this road somewhere. I don't call where I was. Well, now I can download it and be like, oh, that's exactly where I <laughs> where I was. Um, and so yeah, super valuable to be able to access your own data and look back and yeah i've had times where i thought i knew where i was and you go back and you can't find it. I'm like oh yeah i took a record and you go back and look up your own data and I'm like oh i was like two miles off from where i thought i was yeah exactly so i just wanted to kind of bring that in before we get into our data partner and vetting stuff i think that yeah. that was sort of directed at chris yeah so so it, we should explain too could this is one of your jobs, Chris. Yeah, so we kind of divvy up some of the workload within the HurtMapper project. And one of the things that I do is a lot of the kind of public interface and receiving uh, requests for data. So we have on the HurtMapper webpage, we have a page that kind of just lists like in a bullet point format, you know, kind of the basic information that we want you to send us so that we can evaluate your request for data. And generally we're, we're looking to see, you know, Essentially, who are you? Are you with an agency, a university? Are you a student? You know, are you an independent researcher? Uh, we get we get folks all different types and backgrounds requesting data, um, and we just want to make sure that the data again are kind of being distributed to folks that are kind of meeting the underlying project goals of conservation and research related activities. So we do that. Uh, if they're a student, we usually ask for their advisor's contact to make sure that it's, you know, a legitimate request that's associated with that student's work versus just a, I'm personally interested and I also happen to be a student sort of deal. So we'll reach out to a, a faculty advisor or something of, of that nature. Um, you know, Google's a powerful tool. We'll Google the name if we've never heard of you. Um, also, the Herp world's a relatively small world, and you know, oftentimes we recognize names, and we can look and see if you have publication histories and, and things of that nature. Um, and as long as you check those boxes, you know, you have some sort of Herp research or conservation affiliation, even if it's as a, a you know private you know business you know environmental consulting business owner, you know, you have some credentials. Um, you have a legitimate, you know, ask, you know, I'm involved in a research project with X species. That's why I'm requesting this data. Um, you know, then we we provide that data. You know, we're not we're not really typically commenting on like the merit of the project, like, oh, this is really important work or somebody's already done that. You know, it doesn't matter if they just want to replicate work that somebody else has done. 
or, or or whatever their questions might be. We're not really evaluating kind of the, the merit per se, but we're evaluating that that the request is genuine, genuinely trying to further herb research or herb conservation. And then once we kind of check those boxes, uh, data is provided. Uh, we do, when we send data out to folks, provide some additional guidance. You know, we, we make them aware and sometimes have some kind of pre-conversations with the idea that we don't, we don't share, you know, point locations publicly and we discourage others from sharing point location uh, data publicly. So we don't want people to post it on a map or post it in a publication due to the poaching concerns that we already kind of discussed. Um, we, you know, we go through a, a few things like that, but one of the things again, that's somewhat unique is that we provide this data free of charge. We don't charge folks for this, this information. You know, we don't, you know, demand anything in return. They don't have to provide us with any other data. For example, um, really the goal here is to get the data into the hands of, you know, people doing legitimate conservation and research and, and, and that's kind of full stop. That's kind of where, where our role in that data release process. And the last time I looked, um, we have about half of the United States uh, state agencies wow. using our data. I think it was 26 the last time I counted, which is in April when I did, last did a talk on HerbMapper. Uh, mm. So we have 26 states using their fishing game or DNR, or whatever they want to call it, uh, we, that use uh, HerbMapper data to make the informed conservation decisions. Yeah. So. so they typically come to you with a re that, that request for that data? Yeah. yeah, I mean, like the, a state that maybe has a herpetologist will reach out and say, hey, I'm the state herpetologist. Here's my resume. You know, we ask, we typically want them to use their institutionally assigned email address that kind of helps, you know, verify their credibility as far as like, yes, I'm actually agency official. For states that don't have a dedicated herpetologist, it might be a non-game biologist or a wildlife diversity program biologist. Yeah, they reach out, say, hey, you know, we're the state natural resource agency. We want to be able to have access to these data for conservation, planning, and regulatory purposes. Um, and then, you know, in, the, in that sort of situation, state agencies are always given access because um, they're the exact kind of group that we want to get this information into the hands of. So there, there's a couple of instances where we're like at, we would be at like a Midwest park meeting or something along those lines. And I'll be talking uh, to one of the herpetologists from some state and have to ask them like, oh, do you have access to HerpMapper? And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't know I could. It's like, well, well, email me. We're going to. So there's been a couple of times where I've reached out to other people and said, no, we have all this data for you. You should come. You should come access it. Uh, and they were just like, they had no idea or like, oh yeah, they knew HerpMapper was a thing, but they hadn't looked into it yet. And it's like, well, yeah, we have a lot of data for your state already. If you want access to it, just we'll give you access to it. Yeah. So. yeah and I would just say, you know, we have a number of federal agencies, lots of, you know, smaller non, uh, non-governmental conservation organizations with access. Um, we provide a lot of data to student projects, both undergraduate and graduate student projects, um, I know we provided data to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for species status assessment. So that's wow. the kind of process that they use to determine whether or not a species uh, needs to be listed federally as endangered or threatened. Um, yeah, you know, we have we have international organizations that that have access to data. You know, we have a couple groups from India that have access to India data. Australia too. Australia. Wow. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's like I said, that's kind of generally speaking, you know, how the process works. I will say that, you know, we don't get very many 
maybe challenging requests. Mm -hmm. um, but occasionally we've had somebody contact me that says, hey, I'm heading out to go herping in Arizona. Can I have all the data? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's, you know, typically we try to respond very, you know, politely and just say, you know, that's not kind of the purpose yeah. for Herp Mapper. We're not here to give you spots for kind of recreational purposes. Um, we've had a couple companies that lead like eco tours make similar requests. And we're like, look, this really mm. isn't the, the purpose, you know, unless you can submit a proposal in a way that clearly identifies some conservation value uh, or research value to your request. We're not going to turn over data just so that you can show clients cool animals during a tour, for yeah. example. But I would say, you know, thinking back without having actually like looked at numbers before this, this conversation that, you know, probably 99% of all requests are approved. Yeah. And it's really just the few that kind of come in like, hey, I'm heading out herping. Can you tell me where this is? And again, we just respond, sorry, but that's, you know, kind of not the purpose here. And trying to explain a little bit why, you know, poaching, habitat, you know, some of the, the ways people look for these organisms can be kind of damaging on the environment, flipping yeah. rock, logs, flipping rocks. And so kind of explain why we don't just share the information that way. Uh, when, pretty far we also had a number of people say, and this is more or less in the past of the project. Well, this this project is just so that Mike and Chris and Don can <laughs> get all the good herping spots. Uh, you know, it's a good way for them to collect. Uh, you know, all the good herping spots across the the country. And you know, of course, my answer to that is I don't need Herp Mapper to to find herps. <laughs> oh, I still <laughs> love know? it was in, in two thousand and fifteen. Uh, and I was giving a talk out at Peggy Nobart in Chicago, and my presentation would not come up on my laptop. So I used one that Chris had put together. We have like a backup one in the cloud. And the very first slide is me, you, and Chris holding an eight-foot indigo snake when we were down with Orient Society. And I go, I'm really glad put Chris put this in there. I go, guys, I have heard these dirty rumors that we started Herp Mapper to steal your Herp spots. And I pointed at the screen. I go, I don't need to steal your spots. I was like, I, I I get out with enough people. Like we see some cool stuff. It's we don't need to steal yeah. anyone's spots. And I like to bring that up because it's it's like if you uh, if you work as a uh, medical records data specialist at a hospital, you have access to umpteen people's medical records. That doesn't mean you go rooting around in their medical records. You may have access to them, but you don't do anything with them. You don't use them for any purpose, or is even if take your local credit card. You, you know your visa, the guy that works at Visa that helps build the database and maintains the credit card database. They don't use your credit card data, and the Herp Mapper is no different than that. We don't use your data. We don't use your spots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't. We don't really need to. We don't really have time to. And, and it's just unethical for us to do that. And so. for the record, I mean, I've had friends of mine outright ask me if we can give them spots. I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> had friends ask the same thing. I'm like, sorry, we don't use it that way. Like, yeah. I'm not going to pull it up and and say, oh, yeah, go over there. And and I, I'm embarrassed to say this, too, because I've been so busy. I haven't hardly herped the last three or four years. So I'm definitely not in it for the spots. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I want to say full disclaimer on this, lest someone from Iowa is listening or something. Um, so I am both a project admin and in a sense, a data partner for Iowa because I, I manage iowaherps.com. Um, we also do share at the Iowa DNR, but I do a lot of follow-ups and mapping and stuff like that for the state of Iowa. So, um, I still don't go out to people's herping spots, but I do, I do review the Iowa data, you know, and I think Chris, you look at Minnesota data, you help review that because that's where we're both from, you know, not, we're not both from there, but we both look at it in our home States. Um, so there is some times we're reviewing it. 
And there has been some records that came in We're like, well, this needs some follow up. We need to go out and check this out. And even in those cases, though, there's communication with the DNR. You know, it's not where I'm just like, that's a cool spot. I'm going herping. If something significant like that comes into Iowa, I usually send out about five emails to different people. Um, you know, Josh, since we do research together, he's usually like, oh my God, look at this range extension we just picked up because of this thing here, you know. Um, but like amongst the group in Iowa who kind of helps, whether whether it's Paul Freeze, Karen Kincaid, and the DNR, they'll get an email about it. Uh, Terry Vandewell helps, you know. So we'll like communication starts instantly. It's not where I just go, oh my God, I got to go herp in there. Like, yeah, what's well, the best way to keep the stink out? You know, right. it's just to always be above board yeah. w- with this stuff. So, so you, you know, you you had talked about these data partners using it for habitat management, a variety of things like that. Uh, do you see many uh, researchers publishing stuff using Herp Mapper or Herp Mapper data? Yeah, I mean, there's been a number of publications. Um, admittedly, we haven't kind of done a really great job of tracking all that down, but I, I had not that long ago went into Google Scholar and just typed in Herp Mapper and was was pleasantly surprised by the number of publications that that popped up. Um, certainly not all of those were necessarily utilizing Herp Mapper data directly, but maybe were referencing that Herp Mapper existed or, or something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, we have a number of of people that have requested data over the years, um, that have published and, and peer-reviewed uh, publications and, and books, uh, things of that nature. And so it's definitely getting utilized. Um, one other thing that I keep having pop into my mind and keep forgetting to mention is, is this interesting kind of sidetrack project that HurtMapper got involved with fairly early on that was not on my radar. Is the, the fact that we have not only locational data that has research and conservation value, but we have a ton of photographs. Mm. And those photographs can be used for all sorts of interesting things. Everybody's heard of, you know, chat GPT and mm. neural networks and and computer vision. And so we've collaborated both with external entities and done a little bit of uh, work internal to HurtMapper, developing tools to automate the identification of amphibians and reptiles, including with collaborators overseas looking at, you know, can we rapidly identify venomous snakes in the field in some of these remote countries where you don't have a lot of expertise so that, that, you know, bite victims can receive the the appropriate medical treatment. And that was a whole aspect of things that, you know, I had never thought we would be involved in that sort of thing. And, And here, because we have, hundreds of thousands of photographs of amphibians or reptiles, you know, we were positioned really well to help facilitate research and innovation in that, that space that I could have never. And that's, it's something that's probably going to continue. And this is, uh, our, our good friend, Dr. Andrew Durso is uh, part of this project to, uh, I think working with the uh, doctors without borders and, uh, uh, WHO because they identify snake bite as an epidemic. Uh, and the idea that, you know, if you could provide an easy app for a doctor to look at, a, you know, somebody gets bit by a snake and they bring in a photo, they can run it through the an app and, and get a reasonable uh, identification of a venomous snake. Uh, that, that seems like a, 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 a useful a way to use our, our photo, a collective photo data to come up with some useful things to help save lives perhaps. And uh, the other thing that the most amazing thing that came out of that, because this is sort of a pilot project that we did with them to sort of investigate and explore how that would work. But the other thing is that came out of that is that, 
you think there's photos of every venomous snake across the planet. There's not. Mm-hmm. There were a number of, and this is part of one of the things that, uh, that uh, in fact, uh, it was a, a publication that Hurt Mapper uh, got to be a co-author on. Uh, the, the three of us, uh, it, it talked about, you know, the fact that uh, we, we have a long way to go with this because we don't yet have uh, enough photos of every venomous snake on the planet, which you you would think by now we would have that, but but we really don't. So well, I mean, there's there's what there isn't there one of the Mexican crotalids that only one specimen is ever known. Like they found one, they described it as a species, and they've never been seen again. Right? It's like we don't have any photos of that. Yeah, I think there's some in in, in uh, Africa. The same uh, uh, various countries in Africa have the same problem. Um, but uh, interesting, and, and yeah, like I said, something I never never fathomed when we first started this that you know he said eventually some of this data could really save people's lives and and for the listeners out there that may be familiar with like snake bite in the united states where it's like well there's really only one antivenom that treats kind of a little bit of everything that's not the way it is in a lot of other countries like antivenom and other treatments are species specific and so these folks that are working in the medical field in these other countries really do need to know specifically what it was that bit somebody and uh, again, I've, I've learned a ton through this collaboration with yeah. so and other. So one other aspect of research thing that I, I feel often gets overlooked with a lot of people. Uh, so first off is that we we don't allow users to delete records. And a lot of people think that's, oh, again, we're stealing your data. And there's a reason for that is that we we kind of, it kind of transition at it. Hold on, I'm going to rewind for a minute because we're initially, as you said, we're a data broker. When when we first started Hurt Mapper, the idea was that we were the middleman. You give the data to us, we give it to people who need it, then it's theirs. And if Hurt Mapper died in, in a year after that, it didn't matter because everyone had the data. Uh, we found out a lot of people liked us being like a permanent repository for a lot of the data. And so we don't allow people to, to delete it. No different than if you if you donate a specimen to a university or museum collection. Last I checked, they don't allow you to go back in and reclaim your specimen until you can take it. I mean, maybe if you donated and said, well, listen, this is mine. I'm, I'm letting you borrow it. Sure. But for the most part, you can't. So uh, we, or I guess more importantly, Chris took the time and actually registered us as an institution code. So you can actually cite, or cite's probably not the right word, but you can reference HM, you know, HurtMapper records. You can put, you know, HM, whatever, and, 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 the HM is a registered institution code. And so I know some journals are actually allowing. I think I think I actually have one that has some HM yeah. records in it. Yeah. yeah. And so there, there are some journals who allow you to use only the HM records and some who at least allow it as a backup. So you can say, hey, the specimen, the physical specimen is is in, you know, DURC here in Iowa. That's Drake University's or or maybe it's up in the in the Bell Museum in Minnesota. But also, if anyone else is curious and doesn't have access to go to the museum, you can see the photos at HurtMapper and you just put in the HM number and they can reference it as well. Um, so, so, even, so you can have specimens that have two notations, uh, the actual right. specimen notation and then the photo voucher notation. So it's right. almost so. A better because anybody can review it. So it's a better peer-reviewed re- record, essentially. Right. Not... not something in a museum that you can't get to and look at. Well, it might help people make a decision on whether or not they need to drive to Bell Museum <laughs> to actually look at the, do I really need to go up there and see? Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it still facilitates science. Yeah. So, And I would also add, because we've had some criticism about, oh, an online database isn't as valuable as a brick and mortar museum collection. But on the flip side, we've seen, you know, incidences at museums where museums burn mm-hmm. down and specimens are lost. Mm-hmm. And so where we have 
both a digital repository and a physical repository for some of the same data, you know, you kind of have a backup uh, going both ways. And so there, there's certainly value there. God, I remember having a big debate about that one time. So the other thing people don't think about with that, and I don't know, I don't know laws in every single state. I'm, I'm well versed on our, our reptile and amphibian laws in Iowa. So if you're driving down the road and there's a dead bull snake on the road, legally in Iowa, you cannot pick it up. So what is a person supposed to do? They, are they, they're going to pick it up. They might legally get in trouble. They can't legally pick it up without a salvage permit. Um, and if, if they're, if they know the right people, maybe they can go, well, I'm going to pick it up and give it to, you know, Drake university and, and they, they might get away with it. Who knows? You're right. But you know what they can do? They can take a picture of it. So the option is, yeah, maybe, maybe a voucher photo is not as good. You can't go back and look at some of the morphological stuff on it. You can't count scales on it as easily. You can't dissect it for, you know, stomach contents. I get that. But the option is you either have no data or you have some data. And I think some data is better than no data any day of the week. So, so you know, like using the front end of this almost from the get-go, I, I, I feel like it hasn't changed much over in the 10 years that it's been operating. And you, you guys have kind of mentioned some of the way new projects have come about because of what's been going on. But has there been any... Any other like uh, evolution to Herp Mapper that has occurred, you know, from the goals that you had from the start that you think is kind of interesting that important to note or the main thing that comes to my mind, and I apologize earlier, the fact that there's four ways to enter data. And so initially we had we had two. Um, and it was the mobile app, as Mike's already talked about too, and that is that is our favorite preferred method. Um when I when I designed it all, I had a point and shoot camera that had you know did GPS coordinates and uh, geotagged built into it, and so the first system I made is you we have a thing that says upload files, and I could take all my photos for the day, just drag and drop three hundred photos be uploaded, and I could just sit and create records from them. Turns out not everyone else liked that way of doing records, so then I created the regular okay, just go to add record and then do that, and then we found out people didn't want to create accounts, so now there's a submission form that you can do, and it still asks your name and your contact info. Um, but I think what came out of that, what was actually most interesting, where the submission form we made, I then made it so you could kind of plug it into other websites. So like if you go to iowaherps.com slash submit, you'll get the same submission form you see for Iowa Herps. And it, it looks like it's on my site, but it actually puts it into the Herp Mapper database. And what was interesting is that we talked about this being a global project and, and all the benefit you can have from having this big pool of data. But we have found that a lot of people like to contribute to stuff locally. Uh, and they, they feel like they're helping more. So where I, I have Iowa Herbs, Chris runs MN Herbs. Uh, Mike has, is the slacker here and doesn't have an Illinois page yet. You know, maybe we need a submission form on like so much Pingle. Or, I'm, I'm so, not home enough. Yeah. So, so we, we Illinois, have this, you're on your own. We do have a couple other states, though, where we, we kind of did the submission form. Um, but it's more a matter of letting people contribute locally. Like they, they feel like at least if there's a local web page that someone there is definitely going to use the data and help. Um, so which we should also, uh, along those lines, talk about state herp atlases because that's, that's, uh, right. Uh, so, an interface that people use. Yeah. And I think one of the big ones that's worth mentioning, cause there's, there's a bunch of them actually, and we can't spend the whole time talking about every single state herp <laughs> atlas, but now herp mapper helps support but the big one is the carolina herp atlas that was run for a number of years uh, by a university and uh, herp mapper was approached to help kind of keep that project alive and now herp mapper um, pretty much runs the whole thing 
uh, and we certainly have data users in the Carolinas. But yeah, same same deal. We didn't want to just get rid of that that page because people do like to contribute to what they perceive as a local project. But with kind of HerpMapper as the backend database, I think the only thing we 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 tell them it's powered by HerpMapper. So so we we have the whole HerpMapper code base underneath it, but it's it's the Herp Atlas or the Carolina Herp Atlas looks just like it did 10 years ago. It, it's uh, actually the way when, when we took it over. So the submission form now goes into Herp Mapper, but I still maintain their local database. So it goes to Herp Mapper and gets pushed back to their database right. so that the people who logged in and manage the stuff can still see it as, and they can kind of create their access as they need without, you know. And yeah. the nice thing about kind of having Herp Mapper power a lot of these state atlases or other regional projects is that the data all feeds into that one single collective database. And so then when a researcher or conservation group that's working kind of beyond these state boundaries or other geopolitical boundaries wants to do research, they don't have to go to each state atlas and request data for each one of those projects because all that data is actually in the one single I think it also makes it easier for, for states to manage uh, a herp atlas because you don't, you know, we're you doing the data. <laughs> we don't need a Don. You don't have well, a it, database know, this, administrator. You know, yeah. we, we help you with the front end. We just kind of do all the, all the stuff behind the magic curtain for you. And, uh, you get to, just, you know, you get to keep whatever you have up front and, uh, we, you know, the Herp Mapper does all the stuff in the back, all the heavy lifting. So, you know, this kind of rewinds all the way back to the, you know, what got us into this stuff. When I said I tried to help with the Iowa Nature Mappers program and this and that. And a lot of that was because in my early days, I always asked, why doesn't the state have a place for me to do this? Yeah. Oh, we don't have the money. We don't have the funding. Which, right. which is the next question I have. You guys talk about everybody can get the data from you for free or people who a data partner can get the data for free. The app's free. You have this beautiful website that you can search all this stuff. You have all of this information. Three of you essentially run in HerpMapper. How, how is this thing funded? Because it, it costs money to have an online repository of all of these pictures. It sure does, forever. Josh. It sure does. Yeah. Pretty thrifty. Uh, well, first of all, we don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, so you- It's all glory. You work, what, like three, four hours on this and- uh, sometimes uh, I put in 40 hours a week on Hurt Mapper. Yeah. All of I, us I have put, put in extensive hours on Hurt Mapper. It ends and flows, but yeah, there, there have been times where it's been like almost another full-time job. And then there have certainly been times when I, I spend a couple hours. <laughs> One of the things we did post or pre-COVID is we sat down and we tried to figure out what the value, what value, monetary value were we providing and was uh, necessary to run the project. So if we had to pay three people to do the work that we do to keep the project up and running, how much would that cost us? And the answer at back then, I think we did this in 2017 or 2018. The answer back then was over a hundred thousand dollars a year to, to run the project. Uh, now we do get some small grants. Uh, we do get people who send us money. Uh, we, we rely on small donors, uh, and some medium sized donors to, uh, some of the people that, that use our data have, uh, written us into some of their grant proposals and, uh, we've gotten some funding from them and, and it has been enough to maintain, maintain the servers, maintain the software, uh, you know, provide enough to, uh, keep things running and, uh, and so far, so, I mean, 10 years later, so far, so good. So, uh, would we like to get a 
big stinking grant to, to to really solidify this or maybe attach ourselves to an institution in, in some useful way. Sure, but you know those things haven't really happened yet for us. But we're always looking for those. We've been uh, we've been part of uh, a number of grants that just didn't go through for one reason or other. Not every grant, not every uh, <laughs> not every request for money goes through. Yeah. Uh, but we, you know, those are the things we're working on. And uh, I, I'm not saying we're comfortably well off in terms of our cash flow, but we have enough uh, set aside to to keep things running for at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. So One of the things I'd add to this, so a lot of what I do for a living is, you know, I do programming and server administration, security audit, stuff like that. Um, but one of the things I've been really good at over 20 years is running on a really, really slim budget. Um, I am probably one of the few programmers in the world who does not have the attitude of, oh, just buy more servers, scale it up, put it on Amazon, AWS, you know, just who cares if your bill is $10,000 a month. I never bought into any of that. I, and a lot of this is because what I do, even in my personal projects, I don't have a $10,000 a month budget. So I got really, really good at making stuff run on commodity stock hardware. Um, we have a server that, that I, I pay for it myself for my other projects, cost me $100 a month. And I have so many websites on it because I know how to make them, you know, run it, you know, Efficient. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for, efficient. But one example I brought up, my, both my kids are getting into programming a little bit too, and they'd be sick of hearing this story. But there's, so on HurtMapper, we don't have you pick what state you're, or county or anything you're in. You put in the GPS coordinates. We have a database of boundaries, whether that's political boundaries, sometimes it's research boundaries, state parks, whatever, and it detects it. Well, there are a lot of libraries that do that for you. You give it a GPS coordinate, it'll check if it's in a, in a polygon or not they're out there. The problem is they're super, super memory inefficient. So like the, the United States boundary is 700 megabytes in size, I think. for And that's just for the, not even the states, that's just the, the, the border of the US. And the problem is what a lot of these libraries do is they load the whole entire boundary into memory. And I'm sure someone out here is going, well, my computer's got 32 gigabytes of RAM. What do I care if it uses 700 megabytes? Yeah, well, you're not handling thousands of requests a second where it's, where it's taking this in. So that 700 megabytes of memory adds up when you have a lot of data coming in. Well, so I thought about the problem. And I was like, well, anytime it loads this boundary into memory, it's got to load it off the hard drive, right? So if it's reading it sequentially off the hard drive, be, then I can compare stuff while I'm reading it off the hard drive. So I actually optimize our code. I learned I learned the shape file for it. I learned the way that they store all these boundary data in MySQL. I realized it was a linear format. And so instead of having it read it all into memory, then check it, I started reading it in chunks off the hard drive. You know, I'd read 64K at a time. Maybe I forgot what I put it up to. I just increased it recently. And then it little by little checks the coordinates as it goes. It's heavily optimized for what our system does, which is you give it one point and it tells you which boundaries it's in. I will tell you my code sucks for if I say, give me all the points in Iowa because it rereads it from the hard drive every time because that's not what we do day in and day out. We don't need it to be efficient for that. We very rarely have to do this. We, we, we call it re-indexing the boundaries. We have a little tool on there and it's Chris complains to me all the time. It's slow. It's slow <laughs> because that is not what I optimized it for. But it makes it's it so, slow. It's slow, but it's cheap. It's cheap. Right, right. But for what we do, when you give us a coordinate, it'll instantly pop up. Well, that coordinate's in these 10 boundaries. It, it does that fast. And I made it to where it can do that fast. And it does that with very low memory and it does it efficiently. And that way we don't have to spend thousands of dollars on a server because we don't need to spend thousands of dollars on a server. This also reminds me on a uh, more non-programming note that 
if Don was, if a meteor came through the house right now and, and left a smoking crater where Don is sitting over there on the sofa, what would happen to the project? Yeah. Uh, well, if it hit me, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You can get anybody with a big mouth to talk about it because that's that's my job. It's sort of, I'm the evangelist. The face. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mike does so much Off more, but we'll get into that here in a bit. Uh, I'm the evangelist. You can get anybody to talk about the project. Uh, and, and Chris, you know, either Chris or Don gets taken out by a meteor or what happens? Uh, and so we, we have the, the project is kind of future proofed, really. Uh, it, it, it may still go on, but we have a, uh, what we call a, a, a memorandum of understanding with the Orient society. Uh, if something does happen to the, to the project, the people running the project, and for some reason we cannot carry on with the project, uh, the Orient Society steps in to have access to uh, all of the, you know, the, the, the all the code, uh, the whole code base, the, the the servers, the passwords, all that stuff reverts to the Orient Society, uh, which is something that we came up with as an agreement with them when they became one of our data partners. And wow. uh, did I mention we have over a hundred data partners? One hundred, wow, over a hundred. So Orient Society is one of those. Uh, but we have this memorandum of understanding that will keep the project going. Uh, eventually, you know, uh, you know, we're not getting any younger, uh, but we want this project to, to keep moving forward. Right. Back to like the original kind of question and conversation about like how much does it cost to run things? Well, like if you wanted just to keep Herpmapper going the way it is today without any upgrades and improvements, it's very doable. Like it, it runs, like, like we said, efficiently. In the grand scheme of things, very low cost, and so you know, we and we viewed that as as really important to in, ensure the longevity of the project because we can make it really complicated, really expensive. But then when the money runs out, the project dies, hmm. and we did not want that to happen. Yeah, and it's also um, along those lines too. Um, you know, we get help from donations and things like that, so it it, it does keep things moving forward. Uh, without us requiring a ton of 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 money to to actually run run the project, but there's also we have to look down the road. We, we're sitting here at ten years, and uh, will we uh, come back and readjourn for you know a twenty year show? I don't I don't know. Uh, we kind of have to look forward to that and and make make some decisions based on what might happen down the road. That's a, always uh, something that that we have to but that's any organization you know moving forward did I, you know when we started this did we think 10 years later we'd be talking about it we you just don't think that way about i think about these totally these projects it was 10 years until we literally <laughs> sat down for this and i was like wow we told chris that's why we were getting together to do an episode and he forgot he's uh, a busy guy to add to this though i mean chris touched on this a little bit ago the carolina herp atlas had been along for so long they they never foresaw that they might have issues and need someone else to help take it over. Right. Like that's, that's the case with everybody. Um, and luckily there's, there's was relatively simple for us to take over, you know, but it, that's, that's what you're hoping for in anything is that you, 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 it's the whole hope for the best prepare for the worst though. Right. Like we hope hurt mappers gonna be running a hundred years from now, but we also realize that may not be the case. And so we want to make sure that if someone else else has to take it over, that it's as easy for them to do as possible. So, and I'd say a lot of the work that goes in, you know, is, you know, Chris has talked about the vetting and stuff like that, but that's what a lot of the work is, is, is vetting the people. We have a real easy way to set them up access now. And 
I'll, I'll sometimes custom make special access stuff. Like Chris will be like, Don, this guy wants access to this really weird, complicated boundary system. I'm like, I'll I'll make a program that just custom adds that their access form. You could manually do it. It would just be really complicated. He's just, yeah. Chris Chris is one of my few friends. Josh is actually other who actually listens when I go, I'm a programmer, <laughs> you know. Um, well, we should talk uh, of special interest too. was when we, we acquired the Department of Defense Oh, right. as a data partner. Okay, well, real yeah, quick yeah, though, but the, the other work that gets done where Mike was saying he's just a loud mouth and I want to point out, Mike spends a lot of his time maintaining our species list. Oh, A lot of our time. And I will say it gives him a God complex sometimes <laughs> when he finds out that a species has no common name and he Mike. gets that power. There are times <laughs> where if you look up... Wait, so, a, so Mike creates common names? Mike does actually create common names. So I don't know if people yeah. realize it, but if you I, search I no for idea. some species... Yeah. So what the, I, I do is I do a taxonomy review. Okay. So I go through everything. Worldwide, worldwide wow. and uh, review, are we current? Are our lizards current? Yeah. You know, so I go through and I add things. I change things. If something becomes uh, synonymized with something else, I have to go. So I have this interesting perspective on the global herpetofauna in terms of what's out there. And, and you know, we, we have about uh, 26,000 entries in our species list right now, wow. and uh, we should have probably about 27 or 28,000. We're a little behind, but it's hard to keep up with that. Yeah. There's, there's you know, hundreds of new species added every year, uh, but it does. Uh, I will find a lot of uh, organisms to add, new species to add that don't have common names. Uh, and so how, we- How do you decide? Well, we, we, we do have a, a field Every we have a field in our you know in our species database for a common name. Yeah. It doesn't have one. I have to give it one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, then, how how do you decide what to give it for? Well, a I have to go in and look at the etymology of the animal. You know, if oh. it's like uh, if it's a, 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 a let's say it's a toad from South America, uh, and it's it's species it's a species name is maculata, mm -hmm. um, and it's let's say it's in the uh, orange throated toad. Orange-throated toad genus, and I have to call it the spotted orange-throated toad. Or so I have to come up with something that makes sense. Uh, I try to avoid patronyms. I try, or even um, matronyms for that matter. I don't. I try not to put like Pope's spotted toad. Yeah. So I try to use like a comment. Like if if there's a geographic location, I try to use a geographic location in there too. Okay. Like the Moya Bamba spotted toad, maybe instead of Pope spotted toad. Yeah. So I have to kind of make these arbitrary decisions. So in a way, I'm sort of a taxonomic entity, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, and I, I so. have seen it. There's I, I know there's at least two cases. I can't remember the species where I know Mike added them. He came up with a common name, and like within the year afterwards, you'd search for that species, and that common name is being used oh, in other spots and websites. It's like it's legit now. <laughs> that's that's a powerful position. Um, I don't like it at all, but it has to be done. So, yeah. and I want to go back. So Don said that I do a lot of work, and I feel like I'm really the the slacker in the group, and and Don deserves way more credit than he gets. I mean, Don does a ton of work on her mapper, and I just can't. You know, thank him enough and recognize him enough, and then certainly Mike that species list. I, I, I wouldn't have the patience for it. So I want to thank you too because I, I know what it looks like on on the back end. Holy smokes! <laughs> hey, I just cleaned up all of Felsuma yesterday. If so anyone all is of interested, Felsuma is up to date. Exactly.
If anyone is interested, you can go to herplist.org and it is just a single page of every single species in our in our in our database that Mike has worked on. Oh my god. It'll show it with all the common names, all the species name. Um it's it's the format is based off of a book that uh was it Ramos and Ramos I think did that I like their format. Uh it is just a very 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 long single page. And I think I have it downloadable now because people have been asking me about that. So that's that's how we make Mike's work actually get adopted by other people. So we make it easy for them to take the list. Um, but yeah, go look. And that's all Mike's handiwork. Yeah. yeah so you you kind of hit on a bunch of your roles for Herb Mapper, but there's a lot that goes into it. Is there stuff that we didn't talk about that you do? Well, I think the cheerleading is a big thing. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Promoting the project. Um but it also runs up against the fact that we're three people, uh, two of which are gainfully employed. Um, and the other one is just gone all the time. Uh, Add in Herb Mapper Records. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's like, okay, uh, what can three people do? Yeah. We can do X, but we can't do X squared. So there's some some things we can't really get done. We would probably like to promote things better. Um we just fundraising. We would love to do more grant proposals. Right. That's a big lift, workload lift. And, and yeah. I think you know, all three of us, we feel like we're kind of at, you know, or even beyond capacity. <laughs> um, I, and I do want to mention just real quick before we, we get uh, too far down this, this line of discussion that we do actually have an advisory committee. Although I would I would say that I was kind of the, the cheerleader for the committee early on, and I really dropped the ball on that. Um, but, but anytime we, we run into a situation where the three of us feel like we can't come to a, a resolution on a, 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 any particular matter with how we run the organization, we then uh, bring the, the, the topic, the, the controversy, the discussion to our advisory committee. And for those folks that are on the committee that, that are maybe listening to this, we haven't reached out to you in a long time, <laughs> and it's it's on me. It's really I feel like it's on me. Um, I've been meeting for quite a while, really since pre-COVID. To be honest, we haven't really tapped into them very much. Um, but they've in the past they've they've served us well, and I'd like to try to get you know some some kind of reoccurring discussions going again because they've been valuable. And then we have another, uh, a whole suite of other volunteers, or we often call them super users or super um, volunteers that while maybe not um, wearing like a formal hurt mapper affiliation in any way, boy, they, they pull their weight in, in, in so many ways, whether it's through promotions, you know, like Mike mentioned, they might apply for grants and want to use HurtMapper as part of a project and funnel some of those funds to us to help prop us up and keep us going. And so there's, well, let's there's, mention a few names, people who've helped us. Sure. Where do you even start? I always give a shout out to Luke Smith down in Florida. He's, He's one of those guys too, aside from promotion, like every time I'm going through the, uh, the flagged records list. Uh, so we don't, we don't allow, you can edit your own records that you put in and our data partners can also edit your records. And we keep, we keep a history log, any change that gets made to a record, we keep it. We know who changed it, but general users cannot. But if they see an identification that's wrong, they can flag the record so that we know it has to be reviewed. And oh my God, does Luke Smith identify a lot of stuff in Florida. So yeah. he's always in that list. Luke Smith, Matt Ratcliffe. Because now I'm going to feel terrible yeah. for the people that I, I yeah. miss. So Dr. Vanessa uh, Lane, Dr. Jed Lamb, Dr. Andrew Durso, who we've already mentioned. Wolf, uh, Wolfgang Wooster. 
Uh, Justin Michaels, too, has been a big cheerleader for the project. So. Right. Minnesota Connections, Dwayne McDermott does a lot of, of outreach and advocacy for us. Um, and, you know, there's a lot more that I should be able to name off the top of my head and I'm, I'm missing. But then there's probably a ton of people we don't even know about who are out there, like, encouraging folks to kind of take their interest in herpetology and amphibians and reptile observations to that next level. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, don't forget to, um, you know, post it to HerpMapper. And, and actually, and folks either loved me or hated me for it. Early on, I was always like, every post I saw, don't forget to add that to HerpMapper. Don't forget <laughs> right. to add that to HerpMapper. And I don't really do it anymore because I don't have to do it anymore. Other what? People. But people made memes about you. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> they, they were great. <laughs> I forgot all about those. But it was like, you know, we wanted to get our name out. We wanted to, like, remind folks that, you know, oh, you took a picture. You know where you saw it. You know, again, take it to that next level and contribute to something larger. Yeah. And and now I don't, I, I, I'm very rarely saying, hey, don't forget to add that to her mapper because I don't have to because other people have picking up, picked up that role and responsibility and are advocating on our behalf. Is Chris still with the project? Is he okay? <laughs> so it, it's interesting too. I mean, so we have, we have the super users who are going through and they're, they're flagging records for mis IDs. They might, I mean, they notice stuff like, um, Hey, this is this is found in this county, but it's you know that species has never been there. It's this far out of the way too. They'll they'll pick up on the weirdest things like, hey, their note says it's found you know found on a road, but or in a wetland, but it's on the middle of a road. I mean, yeah, yeah. So not that they're seeing the location, but they can they notice this stuff in this in these records. Um, but we also have the super users, and I'm going to give a shout out to a guy here in Iowa who's probably not going to expect you to shout out. He is both the bane of my existence, and I love this guy, is Frank Ziegler. He puts in everything he sees, and I love it. I only hate it because I go through and review every one of those records for Iowa, mm-hmm. and I, I really enjoy the fact that he is every painted turtle, every garter snake, every leopard frog, ev- everything he catches. And Frank, if you do listen to this, keep doing it. Frank is a good guy. He yeah. used to live in Minnesota. Um, and that brings up another point. Uh, and I know Josh may have a couple yeah. more questions to ask before we get there. But, you know, you know people, you know, they'll see me and they're like, ah, man, I, I'm going to I'm gonna start using that app. Yeah. I'm going to start using it. It's like most of the people that I, I get out in the field with, uh, I'm I'm the guy taking her mapper records. I don't really bug it you know, my friends to use the project. But if I had to, if, you know, I have 12,000 records in the project. I don't expect everybody to do, to do that. I'm a super user. I'm a walking herp survey, uh, 12,000 records, 20 countries. My, my, uh, my big question was going to be who has the most out of you three. Oh yeah. It's my, <laughs> not even close, but, but I don't expect people, I don't expect us to churn out, uh, me. Uh, but what I would say is, you've got a pond at the end of your street or a park that you go to and you care about the herps in that pond, the toads in the pond, the herps in the park. If you've got something you really care about, put some data in because it's the part of keeping common species common. Yeah. It is important. If you put, if you put a, if I could talk a hundred people into putting 10 records in, I would feel great about the project. Uh, I don't need everybody to be a super user, but I need people to just to be aware that this is a, a, a project that can, can do good for the stuff that you love, the herbs you love in your neighborhood, your state, your area. It's, in, it's real quick. It's not even, it's not, and it's not hypothetical. So we have a few folks in Minnesota where I you know, live and work that 
go out and they walk their dog. So they walk, they're walking down the side of the, the road, you know, every day, mm-hmm. you know, 365 days of the year. And they are recording all the roadkill, you know, mm. turtles, snakes, frogs. And as a hold result, on. I, I want to point out hold on. as a result, we have put in, in Minnesota, underpasses for wildlife, wow. fencing for wildlife, do in no small part to the that data collection of a single individual wow. at some of these sites. So it really can make a difference on the ground. And th- these wow. are volunteers. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. They're recording records like it'll be just a turtle's foot. I was helping Chris review these for a while up in a couple of the corridors, and it they they would recognize it. Well, that's a turtle. They wouldn't know what it was, but they'd take a picture. I that thought ju- you only knew vole feet. Uh, <laughs> I have a fetish for those. Josh tells me I got to learn a new one now too. But yeah, so they're they're recording the feet, the feet and anything. They'd walk up and down this road, shell parts, wow. feet. Yeah. yeah. Do this to collect that kind of data, but it can totally make a difference. Wow. But if you get a wildlife overpass or underpass or corridor or covert that helps protect them, I mean, you've done your job. I mean, you've done a great job. Well, another, I was actually going to jump into also saying it's not hypothetical. So there, there's a city park. I'm, I'm going to be vague on the details here because it involves an endangered species. But there's there's a city park in Iowa that it, it's it's a remnant sand prairie. And the city was debating development. They were like, oh, we're going to sell this off. We don't, why do we need it anymore? And so one of the, one of the local, like heritage, it's, it's called Burr Land Trust. And, and their, their coordinator got a hold of me and he was asking about it. He goes, oh, do we know when? This stuff was last found there. You know, it's ornate box. I was like, yeah, just back in 2018. And he goes, oh, really? I thought it was, he goes, no, I got a record 2018. And we actually had, so there was, there was a kid who was herping there and he found ornate box turtles. He found, he rediscovered an isolated population of line snakes and some other stuff there. And he put it on herp mapper. So we were able to go to the city and go, look, here's, here's the vouchers. Here's the locations. Here's the time they were found. Here's who found it. If you need to contact him, you want to reach out to him, you know, he's, he's more than willing to tell you all about it. And they're no longer planning on developing this park and selling it off. So that's that's a hundred percent a real world thing where someone who had a park they enjoyed were out there herping, recorded what they found. It was it was some important species, and they saved the park. And I I remember I remember letting him know that too, and he was kind of like neat. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I hadn't heard that story before. That's pretty awesome. And, and I would just add a little bit more because it's not again it's not only about the rare species. So some of these. Um, turtle road mortality kind of mitigation measures that we've done in Minnesota haven't necessarily always been just for some of our rare turtles. I mean, if we have a a relatively short segment of road and there's a hundred dead painted turtles per year on that segment of road, it's unacceptable. And, And with that kind of data, we can get the political will to address it. But without the data, people just saying, I see a lot of dead turtles, you're not going to be successful with the data points. If I can pull up a map, again, yeah. thinking back, like, uh, you know, because I'm a data partner in Minnesota, I can pull up a map of all the locations and show a, a decision maker that picture of like, this is just this year's turtle road mortality from this 500 meter stretch of road. A picture speaks a thousand words. Yeah. And, and we're able to sell it that way. So it really does make it. Everybody likes turtles. Everybody wants to protect turtles. Almost well, and, and aside from, again, what Chris, aside from the picture of the map, remember, we require photo vouchers of even the dead things. So we have a picture of every one of those dead turtles on that road. Yeah. So if folks don't want to, they, they doubt you or think you're making things up, we have the actual data. Mm. Um, and, I t- and I tell you, so I collect a lot of roadkill data, um, and it's super depressing. But when you can see the, the value in doing that work, it makes it all work. 
No, that that that's great. And as somebody that also looks and cares about turtles, you know, hearing these is uh, is very inspiring. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of an app called iNaturalist, but what what I wondered what your thoughts are on that. Using can I take my data from iNaturalist? Are you going to use it? Like, why should I use HerpMapper over iNaturalist? Well, I get people that come up to me when I do my uh, evangelism bit, you know, and I'm talking to groups and they'll say, well, yeah, I already use iNaturalist. I don't really have time to do anything else. I'm like, fine, keep using iNaturalist. But did you know that you can take your iNaturalist herp data and import it into HerpMapper and double your conservation contribution? And then they go, oh, well, how do I do that? Well, just send mail to info at herpmapper.org and we'll help you get that set up. And it's real easy to do. And then you can, you know, as long as you have a picture and a location, um, we'll import that. You know, we're not, uh, we don't feel like we're competitors of yeah. iNaturalist. Obviously, iNaturalist does much, much more than Herp. So uh, we, we definitely want to continue to encourage people to use that. But uh, don't forget about us. Uh, we can we can use that data too. And uh, it, it really does make a difference. If you can add other vectors of uh, other users of that data simply by doing an importation uh please consider it i think you know that's a so one one thing with iNaturalist too and i I always hate when these topics come up you know hurt mapper versus iNaturalist and and i got to commend them for what they're doing too and we know they're actually not working on a big budget just as much as we are you know i think early on we assumed they had a way bigger budget than us we learned we learned somewhat recently they don't um they're doing a good project it's a place for everyone to put in everything and one of the one of those fundamental things we disagree with is that whole given point locations to the public. Um, I've been personally involved in poaching cases, doing the investigation and stuff. I know Chris has in Minnesota when he was with DNR and stuff. So it's it's something I think people think we're over exaggerating a lot. And I can tell it's not. And I'm sure there's people listening who have been involved in some of these cases before too. But it's 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 a multi million dollar business with people poaching stuff. So billion, yeah, billions of dollars. Um, can I how I ask answer the question about perp mapper iNaturalist? I think first and foremost, you need to submit your data somewhere mm-hmm. so that it can be used. Number one, that's the most important yeah. thing. Number two, there are, I would say, some significant differences on how Herp Mapper operates versus how iNaturalist operates. Um, I don't think we need to get into all those details, although the point location piece is one of them. And so I would just encourage folks to kind of research both projects and, and utilize the one that works best for them. But like overall, we just need you to submit observational data because if, if you decide that like, oh, there's too many options, so I'm not going to submit it anywhere, that's not doing anybody yeah. any good. And like Mike said, we can import it. You can make sure it's in multiple places that you can kind of maximize the potential use. But yeah, iNaturalist does does some some great stuff. I use iNaturalist also for certain things, um, and they do some things super well and are doing great stuff. And so I think folks just need to kind of research the projects, the pros and cons of each, and and you know make sure they're submitting their observations somewhere. Yeah. Well, so we're at the ten year mark here. We've talked about a few highlights of where HerpMapper is with the hundred seventy some countries. 175, but who's counting? 175 countries. We have 280, what did I just say? 286 248. countries. 248. 248. So you have them way off. But yeah, we have a hundred. We have we have records for 176 of the 248 countries that we recognize wow. in HerpMapper. 
That's that's amazing. What about uh, record? And how many numbers of records? Oh, a little over hundred and. Four hundred and one thousand. Four hundred and thirty-one thousand. Yeah. And nine. So, wow. Yeah. Who's? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, number of users? Do you have? Uh, might, might be trickier. Don can pull that up so we can come back. I used yeah. to have all that stuff in my head, but I yeah. forgot. Um, Lots. We have twenty-seven thousand four hundred and fifty-five user accounts in the database, wow. and I think we have around six thousand active users. Six or seven thousand that are what we would call active users. Okay. So. I think we looked that up like that's who submitted a record in the last year or within yeah, the year something or something like that. Yeah. So, and do you see like uh, growth from one year to the next typically with the number of records entered and active users? I haven't seen a, a, a chart lately, but yeah. I think um, it's steady. Yeah, it's been fairly steady. COVID, like everybody else, COVID. Uh, f- funny thing, I think at COVID we had like a, a leveling off, but then at, you know later in during the pandemic it started going up because people started going outside again because they were cre- tired of sitting in their houses. Um, but yeah, I think it's been a, a slow, steady uh, increase. Yeah. You know, we haven't seen a any kind of a plateau in our number of users and a number of records. Um, so yeah. What do you, you, you know, kind of wrapping this up, what do you guys feel like you're most proud about with where hurt mappers come or what hurt mappers accomplished? I, I mean, I, I know some of the stuff that's come out of like some of the rare sightings that people then followed up on and have blown the little, you know, places where they thought animals were extirpated and a record comes in from some random birder, walker, whatever. And it's, and it's turned into a full on research thing and, and surveys happening and stuff. And, and that I think is the most interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like what Chris said, you know, we have the projects like the, the, the um, image classification stuff, you know, AI, uh, we experiment a lot with that. We actually raise funds. I I call it my supercomputer. It's not quite that powerful, but uh, I do have a computer here that I do trainings on myself and I get to experiment with. And um, th- that's something I think is cool to come out of it. And we've actually then, because of our experience with Hurt Mapper, I've actually helped some local bug guys. We do the classifier for that. Um, and we've, we've, you know, kind of through what I learned with Hurt Mapper and doing that stuff, I helped the bug guys too, and we're getting like more bug data. So it's it's an indirect thing that came from doing Hurt Mapper that helps do that. So it just, yeah. What was the question like, again? What are, most, <laughs> what are you most sort of proud about? You know, there's. I feel like you guys have accomplished our friendship. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, certainly there what? are like we've met like people doing fantastic work that I probably would have never interacted with but for the Hurt Mapper project and and making those connections. And and yeah, some of those have turned into, you know, friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's so much we probably don't know what's happening out there, but like I know of a few situations where due in large part to, you know, observations for a rare species in an area that it wasn't thought to occur, you know, uh, state or county conservation organizations have actually purchased property mm. for wow. conservation purposes to protect populations and like, to me that's like as conservation as you can yeah, get let's yeah, buy sure. private property and protect it into perpetuity for future generations you know seeing data being used for like wildlife underpasses you know hearing about data use in ways again that i could have never foreseen like the whole snake bite medicine yeah. piece was like something that i had never thought that i would ever be involved with in any way, shape, or form. And here we found ourselves in a fairly unique position to really assist 
with this effort, given the number of photos we had. And, yeah. and so as, as long as we can continue to provide value to the research and conservation community uh, going forward, I feel like, you know, we are being successful. And that's kind of what I hope we can continue to, to do. Yeah. Uh, the last time I looked to, it was at least several dozen publications that we've been uh, named in or been a part of. Uh, and 100 plus data partners, that's pretty significant to me. But when I, what I tell people, we have a lot of global data, don't get me wrong, we have, but the, the amount of records we have in the United States is astounding. And I tell people that ask me about the project, you know, you go ahead and use Herp Mapper, put in a record anywhere in the United States, chances are really good that that record goes into play almost immediately in somebody's project. Um, can't say that for all, but the chances are good. It, as soon as you enter that record, somebody's going to use it. It's not like it's sitting on a shelf waiting for somebody to come up with a project. Use of the records for conservation uh, decisions is underway all the time. So I think that's, to me, that's a, a big deal. But the fact that the, the project is uh, live, active, and already useful. Yeah. Not We're not sort of banking on uh, some future uh, event or hoping for some you know future use of the project. It is an active, useful project right. at, at the 10-year mark. You know, something Mike, I think, touched on at least once, possibly twice earlier as we were recording, um, was DOD Park. And when we kind of partnered up with them, and so where he's saying, if you put a record in, it, it's going to go to something almost immediately. So we gave um, Rob Lovich, does Chris Peterson have access to it, both of them? So when I first had a back, so, so they're, they're with the Department of Defense. I forgot which branch of the military they reach in. And they they survey a lot of the grounds for the military. And so Rob's purpose for using Hurt Mapper was he wanted his employees to put in what they found and use it as a management tool for him. And he thought we had an error on our site because when I set up all his access, he already had like 1,400 records. And he goes, oh, no, Don, there's an issue. We didn't put any data in yet. It's like, oh, no, no, there's families that live on base and they herp on the base, you know, and they go out in these areas. And he's like, he just never even thought of that, that that was something he would get data from. Like, he's like, well, isn't only my employees out there on the military property? He's like, well, if the, if the families can go out, they're, they're going to go out and get data too. And he's just like, this is like a whole new thing for him. Yeah. That's the thing. If, if you come sign on as a data partner, your data is already preloaded usually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I really think it's, it's that, uh, that simplicity that you guys provide of anybody contributing to science, to, to biology, that it's, it's an important an important component of it that, you know, a uh, hundred thousand eyes are better than three, that they can cover a lot more ground. They can see a lot more things. And, you know, you, you start this with a goal in mind and then everybody else figures out how to use that data, what they can use that data for. But, you know, Don's neighbor can put a record in and that, that record's going to be used in some capacity. And, and that connection, I think to me is what you should probably be most proud of that, anybody can contribute well, to science. To add to that too, I mean, adding to the anybody part too, one thing we forgot to mention is you don't even have to identify what you're putting in. No. Like, you know, Chris mentioned on the Minnesota stuff, we review it and stuff, but like, and we've had people put in worms thinking they were snakes and stuff like that, but it's like, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'd rather you put it in and we figure it out than not. But yeah, literally anybody, you don't have to know how to identify reptiles. You don't have to be a herpetologist. <laughs> right. You can always use, choose unknown ID and we'll We'll, uh, we'll eventually identify it for you. And that and that doesn't even put that on me, Mike, and Chris. Again, so if, if you put something in for uh, South Dakota is, uh, Drew? Yeah. So if you put something in for South Dakota, 
Drew Davis will see that, and Drew Davis can identify it. We don't have to. He will, hopefully. Yeah, and he's that's another one of those data partners that we failed to mention earlier. That, um, but he he has been a, a, one of our super users and helped help uh, generate grant funds to help support the project. And yeah, he's super active in South Dakota, even though I don't believe he lives there anymore. Uh, no, it's also worth mentioning that he also edits uh, Her for You. So, yeah. uh, man of many talents. So, yeah, yeah. So another one of those folks that have been uh, instrumental in, in our success. So is, you know, as we think, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to cover, talk about? We've kind of touched on the future, just what's going to happen too. But I often have people ask me, like, what do we still want to build on? And this is one of those things where I tell Mike and Chris sometimes, I don't tell them all of my ideas because I don't know we get them out. I did, I did hear Chris one time uh someone had asked him what version of wordpress we make the website it i heard chris laugh at him and go don doesn't use wordpress don makes wordpress <laughs> but so we we do, i do all this programming i have so many experimental things i want to do um and it's it's nice to have a test bed and sometimes i'll do them on the side and whether i decide to put them sometimes i'll tell mike and chris sometimes we don't talk about it sometimes i'll just suddenly pop up a new feature and go test this for me guys but there's some of the stuff that I think is going to be interesting is that if we can make this a more valuable tool for the general user, where right now someone might like ID or submit something without an ID. And again, if it's for Iowa, they'll make a note. Oh, I'd love to know what the snake was in my yard. And I'll see it and I'll email them and tell them what it is. I assume Chris will kind of do the same for Minnesota. But we've, as Chris mentioned, like we're, we're experimenting this image classification. I've been doing these experiments and it's like, it'd be great if eventually it just auto ID'd stuff for you, you know, where we didn't have to do anything. Um, and it's, it's interesting we, we've talked about this in the past, too, and this is something I, I think some people take for granted, seeing more and more AI stuff coming out. And first off, when we started playing with the, with the vision classification, it was like brand new. So it's kind of... We were doing it for school. Yeah, we're, 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 we're AI hipsters a little yeah, bit. Uh-huh. So what's, what's going to be really interesting here going into the future is Herp Mapper maybe end up being done by drones. You know, and it's I like to think about that stuff with the project, but what can it be where... You know, we we actually were working on a project with some people with automated camera traps where they were going to submit all the, the photos to us. We'd have our, our AI identify it, put it in Herp Mapper, send it to them, whatever else. Um, you know, there's the possibility here eventually where you could have a drone fly transects over a pond, have it identify the turtles on a log, do object detection, and put that into a database like Herp Mapper. And, and folks are already doing that with other other groups and another thing so i like to think about like what the future could do although i am not capable of helping <laughs> us get there but like you know automated vehicles have cameras lidar radar they have so many sensors and i think about like how much potential roadkill data could these cars be generating without any human involvement like how do we tap into that potential resource and the other piece, and this is, again, something I think about given what I do day to day for my, my day job, but, you know, we think about, like, we all now rely pretty heavily on, like, Google Maps or Apple Maps to route us places, and you can take traffic into consideration, you can take uh, road construction and tolls into consideration. But what if we were able to collaborate with, with Apple and Google to also identify high uh, concentrations of, like, amphibian reptile roadkill or other roadkill and seasonally let's just say like during spring migration have the google maps app not route you through this area where we know there's a high mm-hmm. concentration of wildlife moving across the road and instead divert you 
to uh, a, a less impactful route. Like, so you could have a little toggle where you could say, I want to avoid killing animals. Like, of course, on by default. It, <laughs> you would name it something nicer than that. But I mean, you could choose as a person to say, I would rather take a slightly longer route and avoid being a, a conservation problem to species X, Y, or Z. Mm. And like, we're so close to having the kind of data and ability to do and really have this crazy what I would be with a crazy cool impact on, on the world. So that's, it's an interesting thing here. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to go out to these other conferences we talk to. We tend to be at herb focused conferences. And I know there's some journals that talk about new technology used in, in, in research and stuff like that. And that's, that's some of the coolest thing though coming out of herb mappers, taking the data we have in conjunction with some of that other stuff and how do you mix the two together? And yeah, so I've, I always had this question in my head, like, okay, so if I have a road that I find a lot of dead snakes on, is it because there's a lot of snakes crossing it or because there's a lot of cars on the road? Mm. Yeah. Apple and Google have the traffic data one. They know how many people are driving on that road. So they can say, oh, a thousand cars went by. Okay. So we had 10 dead snakes per thousand cars, or we have a thousand dead snakes per hundred cars. You know, that's interesting stuff to look at in the mm. future. One of the other things, and I know you need to wrap this up uh, soon, but we we try to facilitate things for the end user, yeah. your average person who's going to put the toad in that they find down the street. Incidentally, I I uh, I uh, vouchered a I used Heart Mapper at my daughter's wedding. There was a toad <laughs> sitting right outside the door to the to the uh, the venue, and I just like took a picture, and my daughter's like. Are you herp mapping a toad at my wedding? Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you, you just say herp mapping? I believe there's a word for that, Mike. Oh, it's called merping. Yeah, there you so, go. But anyway, uh, but anyway, so we, we try to make things easier for the for the end user. One of the other things that we've been getting requests for is to uh, develop a herp mapper as a tool for people that do work in the field uh, as a way to we add a way to calculate effort which is also important uh, when people are doing survey work. And so that's something that we've, we haven't really gotten in place yet, but we've talked about it and we've worked on some ways of doing that. But a, a way of, uh, if, you've, if you're uh, managing a property and you've got five guys in the field doing a herp survey, what is, you know, and you need to calculate the level of effort, how much time is put in, yeah. what, how many herps did you find over that? So we're, we're, that's one of the things that uh, we'd like to work on in the future too. And that, that's, not necessarily for the end user, but it'd be great if more end users use it. And I can think if, if we had that sort of thing, I would just leave it turned on all the time while yeah. I'm in the field. Passively collect that effort. So again, yeah. you don't have to like write down your start time and end time. Your phone would track. Yeah. yeah. Take kind of the human element out of collecting that information. Yeah. So th this is one of those projects where we, we got, it hurt us the amount of data collection bigger companies are doing, unfortunately because I had all the code worked out to put GPS track log in our app. And that's what we were going to do. We, we could track where you were at, how fast you're moving. So I, if you're moving 55 miles an hour, you're road cruising, you're not walking that fast, right? Right. We can tell, we know everything. If you're, if you're going through an area at one to two miles an hour, obviously you're probably stopping and flipping rocks. You might see it, you know? And so the idea was that we could gauge your effort and put that in. And, and we've had some people tell us like, there's no way that would not fit the models. We're like, well, yeah, but we'll come up with new models, right? Um, we know enough people. There's, you know, we know some professors who work with mathematicians, you know, so you can come up with new models. Now, the issue I ran into is that due to privacy concerns, Google and, and, and uh, Apple now make it harder to track locations in the background. Mm. And there's so many hoops where it's like, 
I don't even know if it's worth putting in our app. Like we need to find a third party app that did all the jump through the hoops and just let them submit it. But then it's less convenient for the user. Um, and that was, that was just like all right around the start of COVID as I started trying to look into this, okay, what, what hoops do I got to jump through? And with COVID and life just got weird for everybody, you know, and it just kind of was like, well, it's, it's no longer, well, here's my code. It's done. Let's just do this. It's now like, there's, I, I can't even describe the hoops I have to jump through code wise to make something run in the background for more than five seconds. Mm, so okay. all because you people want longer battery life <laughs> and privacy <laughs> concerns. <laughs> well, do you have any more questions you, for you us? Know, I just want to say, I, uh, I thank you three for all that you've done for the herp community. You know, it does bring a lot of people together. Uh, it does bring a lot of opportunity for citizen science, which I, I personally think is a very important component that provides countless amounts of data, countless potential for projects that it's going to be there in perpetuity forever. There's this fantastic database that's easy to use, and it's all on the back and hard work of you three. And I and all the rest of the Herb community, thank you uh, very much for that, for 10 years of that. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. It's a team effort. The whole community deserves credit, but I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm going to add to it before we stop, but it's like, yeah, because what we do means nothing if people don't use it. Mm -hmm. So people can thank us all they want. And yeah, we, Mike does taxonomy, Chris does outreach. I do programming. It's like, it, none of it matters if people aren't using yeah. the project and putting so, data in. Huge thank you to all of our, our users, all of our people who put stuff in, find mistakes, help us identify animals. Uh, just give us suggestions. Anybody who's had any contact with the project and has helped us, it's it's been huge. So and we appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. How was that, Josh? I I don't know how you end these. Like <laughs> I I'm, was hoping maybe you take the lead and wrap it up with <laughs> okay. some <of> witty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I drank that glass of chocolate milk when we started, and I said it was like. <laughs> I, can't, I, I gotta go. I gotta go. Okay, we should have stopped like 30 seconds ago yeah. then. <laughs> you can edit. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate oh, thank that. You and uh, Chris and, and Don, thanks uh, for uh, uh, sitting down with me and talking about this. And of course, thanks for your friendship and for uh, sticking with this project. And it's been it's been fun. It's yeah, kind of been fun. So next yeah, next ten. Clink. Clink. <laughs> Although, Mike, if you keep coming to my house for podcasts, people are going to think we're friends or something. <laughs> I don't know if you keep getting up to pee in the middle of the podcast, maybe, maybe I'm not going to come back. You know, we should go to Jim's and use his studio. Oh, we could do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks folks. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I want to take this time to fill in the blanks on a couple of key elements that we missed in the discussion. But uh, to begin with, I want to take some time to thank some people. First of all, uh, I want to personally thank Chris Harrison for his work on the Herp Mapper species list early in the project. Uh, I run across Chris's work uh, often while I'm doing my taxonomy updates, and I very much appreciate his efforts. Thank you, Chris. We mentioned some folks who help by making identifications and flagging records with issues. And I want to mention a few more, including uh, Matt Ratcliffe, uh, Matt Ignafo, Edward Prenzler, Samuel Tav Tavolieri, uh, and Brock Davis. And uh, there are more folks, of course, but these are the names that come up consistently when I look at flagged records. But if you're helping with that, uh, if you've ever flagged a record or helped us with an ID, 
I thank you very much. It, uh, it means a lot to us. It just makes the project that much better. More thank yous. I want to thank Jeff Lem for his role as one of the pioneering architects of Herp Data Collection uh, way back at the beginning. And I also want to thank the folks who worked on the NA Herp project as well. And I also want to express my gratitude to the Herp Mapper Advisory Board who helped keep us uh, on course. And uh, of course, I want to also thank the folks who are members of the Herp Mapper Users Facebook group and make contributions there. One of the things we forgot to mention is that Herp Mapper is registered as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And uh, though Don and Chris and I don't draw salaries, we are occasionally compensated for things like uh, travel expenses and equipment and things like that. Uh, uh, sometimes when we think about it. So it's a lot of work for three people at the center of the project, and occasionally I'm asked why we don't have a larger core team, and the answer to that lies in the decision-making progress, and this is something I, you know, I learned in the course of my career. Uh, any more than three people and, and things like uh, building consensus and charting direction become much harder and uh, much less effective, and obviously we're very grateful to everyone who helps out with the project overall, but I think Keeping our core small has been very effective for this uh, this type of endeavor. I also want to touch uh, for a moment on record privacy. If it wasn't clear, a specific locality data that's included in records is not available to anyone but the record creator and the data partners who use it. So the general public can only see data down to the county level. HeartMapper users can also check the hide this record from public view box for sensitive species or areas, and uh, we encourage users to consider that option as necessary. And like most social media platforms, with HerpMapper, the EXIF metadata associated with any pictures that are included in a record, uh, all that data is stripped out, so, so time and location metadata are not available to the public. You can't click on an image in, on a HerpMapper record and, and get some information from that. So records are locked down pretty tightly. And lastly, uh, I think, uh, if you want to check out HerpMapper and you have questions, uh, feel free to ask me or Don or Chris. Uh, and uh, don't forget uh, that there's a Facebook group as well and many helpful people there. And you can also send email to info at herpmapper.org. And uh, for all you iNaturalist users, uh, uh, please consider doubling your contributions by importing your iNet records over to HerpMapper. It's pretty easy to do. Just send an email to info at herpmapper.org and uh, we'll help you get it done. And for all you folks who put in HerpMapper records or INET records or even NA Herp records, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You're making a big difference, and I hope our episode makes that clear. And thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for episode 90. Thanks again to Don Becker and Chris Smith, uh, not only for talking about the project, but uh, also for their friendship and for their hard work over the past 10 years as well. What do you say? Let's uh, agree to meet again in uh, 10 years for another update. And uh, thanks once more to Dr. Josh Otten for taking on the interviewer role. And I want to say thanks uh, once again to everyone out there who supports the show. And uh, as always, I want to say thanks to all the So Much Pinkle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And uh, if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. 
just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word and you can also make one-time contributions via paypal or venmo you can just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details on that and don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com and you can join this so much pingle facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests you know i say it every time but i do like hearing from folks and i like to hear your thoughts and opinions, your guest suggestions, and uh, whatever it is you got. So you can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com. Also, please note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>